0: Org. This episode is from the years 2014-16, through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy.
1: Hi everybody. Welcome back to Childhood, History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan and this installment of CHC is the second of two on violence and generational relations. This time I have a conversation with Ben Parsons, lecturer in English at the University of Leicester in the UK. Ben is a literary critic. He has produced a wide range of analyses of medieval and Renaissance drama, folklore, and exegesis, and other forms of literature. His work has appeared in collections and journals including Medium Abum, the Chaucer Review, Modern Philology, the Journal of American Folklore, and European medieval drama, to name a few. We begin with Ben's academic background and his current project, Discipline, and the Late Medieval Classroom. Here we discuss the varied justifications and understandings of the relationship between the body, physical violence, and learning that circulated in Late Medieval and Early Modern texts. In part two, I asked Ben about the 1669 children's position, an anonymous request for the English Parliament to regulate and limit corporal punishment in schools. I was interested in hearing what Ben thought about and noticed in this document. What were the points of continuity and change that he could see based on his understanding of earlier discourses on corporal punishment? We recorded this conversation in May 2015, and I hope you find it as helpful as I did. Take care.
0: Well, Ben, thanks. Thanks for joining Childhood History and Critique.
2: Yeah, you're quite welcome.
0: And you're you're uh you're coming to us from Leicester. Uh, That's correct. In the UK. Yep. Well, let's let's just get right into it. I, my first question is. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your intellectual uh, interests, and your academic background? Uh, yes,
2: certainly. Uh, um, well, I'm a, a literary specialist predominantly. That's sort of what I teach and what I publish, and, uh, and that is my um, educational background too. Um, I got my PhD in 2007 from the University of Sheffield, and I've been working at the University of Leicester in various. Uh, forms and capacities from about 2008, I think, and mm-hmm. um, I was made teaching fellow and I've gradually sort of managed to climb up to the level of lecturer uh, as of 2013. I don't know why I'm so sketchy in these details, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, But predominantly, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of based in in English uh, literature, um, in the medieval and sort of early modern period kind of where my expertise and where the kind of interest was sparked um, in terms of the kind of literary portrayals of, of the classroom, trying to make sense of those kind of salient, often quite stereotypical features of, of medieval education you tend to find in those portrayals.
0: And you have a, you have a project that you're engaged in right now. Um, That's right, yeah. Violence in the medieval classroom. Can you That's, yeah, tell I've, me a I've little bit of
2: about that? Dispose to disposed violence. <laughs> <laughs> in the title, um, I've been thinking of it um, more recently, which is rather less, sort of, I guess, sexy and forceful, but discipline rather than violence in the medieval classroom. So I, I sort of, I've come to the realization that um, violence is kind of specifically a category of factors which they're often trying to avoid. Uh, in terms of the sort of general um, thrust of the project, I mean, basically it's, a, it's designed to Resolve that question of exactly what role physical coercion and corporal punishment play in education, Mm -hmm. uh, in the medieval period specifically. Um, What I was really trying not to do was sort of impose kind of retrospective um, value judgments onto the period. So Mm -hmm. I'm trying to kind of make sense of the Activities and the practices of, um, of discipline, and the effects that are attached to them, the rationales that underpin them, in terms of the logic of the period itself—exactly how physical force is kind of mapped in terms of the contribution it played to the acquisition of knowledge or the creation of a kind of literate subject. Um, how exactly a uh, blow. On the pupil's body were meant to kind of affect the internal architecture of the, of the child's mind. I mean, how exactly did medieval pedagogues kind of square that of the problem? What sort of solutions and explanations and rationalizations did they offer for that?
0: One of the arguments that you mm-hmm. that you you make in in the work that you've produced thus far is that yeah that that in this relationship between blows upon the mo- body and learning. Mm-hmm part of your argument is as i understand it is that that it's mm-hmm. varied that there's not that it's not a monolith that it's unsettled one of the observations you make is that that the elaborate justifications themselves the fact that they are quite elaborate in the late medieval period actually and and mm-hmm. and also uh, back to into the the high middle ages that 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 itself suggests there's a need for justification
2: that it yeah. can't be taken for granted no i think i think that's 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 quite accurate i mean i sort of see it as a kind of a, a sort of a dual issue i suppose it's kind of two sides to this the sort of the need to rationalize punishment but also on the same on, on the other hand the fact that so many different and very distinct justifications are put up there isn't a kind of you know common sensible idea of what um punishment happens to do each pedagogue seems to come at this um this issue from their own often quite unique and idiosyncratic standpoint so there's this there is no kind of overarching consensus even though there is that kind of consensus on the necessity of beating there's a weird sort of parallel lack of consensus on on why in terms of its kind of effectiveness or its efficacy why it's It's why it is used, kind of what it what it actually does do this of such great benefit to learners. I mean, all these different kind of ideas are cooked up instead. I mean, that it's odd. I mean, as you say, there's kind of this this desire to justify, a desire to kind of make it um, rationalised. So there's a clear sense that it is useful, that it is necessary, that punishment and coercion are kind of indispensable facets of education. On the other hand, the fact that there are so many and so varied um solutions to this question brought So it's just there is a disconnect.
0: And in your forthcoming article in modern philology, part
2: of your overarching point
0: is that in the late medieval period, what perhaps used to be called the Renaissance, a term that's kind of gone away. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But, so I think, yeah. Yeah, but in the in this late medieval flash early modern period, there's there is in fact a a, a variation in explanation. But one of the things mm-hmm. that Dolvin observes is, and I, I, I just want your, uh, you to speak to this, is that there's seems to be little distinction between order and instruction in the pedagogical discourse, and this mm-hmm. is drawn out of his uh, 2007 book Scenes of Instruction yeah. in, um, in Renaissance Romance. And, the, the, again, the, there's less of a, dist, a, a distinction than we might expect from a modern perspective between order and instruction. And I, I'm interested in your thoughts on that.
2: Well, I, I think it's, it's quite a, a complex issue. I mean, I think broadly that's a sort of accurate summation, but I would add a, a few sort of points of nuance. I mean, certainly towards the early 16th century and, and the late 15th century, you, you find in sort of satire against um, uh education and and school teachers in particular yeah. as a kind of estate, this this kind of increasing sense that um and again the kind of portrayal of, of punishment is kind of a big, a big part of this. Um the the I mean I'm thinking of something like um Erasmus's uh, praise of folly, for instance the depiction of the school teachers in there, which leads on to uh Mon- Contains work around destruction from later on in the period, um, where the, the schoolteacher is kind of caricatured as a sort of bully. Um, I think there's a um, a painting by Bruegel as well, the Ask Goes to School, which again kind of shows the kind of same idea that they are depicted. And I think, if I remember correctly, Erasmus describes the schoolroom as a, a pistrina or a kind of flour mill. Which is just their kind of grind students, um, <laughs> yeah. in, in this kind of lovely kind of industrial sort of uh, imagery. Um, and he says you hear nothing in there but the, the cracking of rods and the, uh, the flapping of whips and the screams of the children. You know, so language is kind of, reasonable language is kind of blotted out by the kind of screams of the, the sort of punished, according to Erasmus. And I guess that, the way those attacks on this kind of established education system are sort of, and the, I mean, there's a kind of continuity there, of course. I mean, you can see how this kind of satiric figure of the school teacher kind of persists for sort of centuries afterwards. I mean, you know, you don't have to think of kind of Dickens, kind of Waxworth, Squeers, and, um, well, yeah, I don't want to get into all that. <laughs> but, well,
0: no, it's a theme. It's a theme that runs all the way into the present. I think. Sure you know, does. You yeah. Draw a line from Erasmus all the way to cartoons. I can remember a famous one. I I, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal after a 1979 yeah. case in the United States affirmed uh, rights of, of corporal punishment. Uh, basically, corporal punishment not a violation of uh, cruel and unusual mm-hmm. usual punishment clause in the U.S. Constitution. Course, yeah. And what it showed was. A, a set of various implements for striking children, and it it basically said instructional materials you know mm. and, and, and no, but, I is, yeah. but the point was is that for the reader, what you're invoking is that whatever those birches and and yeah. paddles are, they aren't instructional materials, kind of
2: identifying coercion of the body with everything that is sort of um, to be rejected from the educational system. The fact that that emerges in the kind of late 15th, early 16th century shows that perhaps there is a kind of gradual movement away from um, identifying learning and instruction and kind of command and um, acquisition of knowledge as being sort of almost synonymous.
0: Exactly. I mean, part of what the the metaphor of the of the children as the wheat being grinded mm. at least calls out. They shouldn't be viewed as that. That they're not just
2: inhuman, unnatural. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That there should be a, also, a chasm between subjectivity
2: and mere mm. objects. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that does seem to be exactly the point. I think also though there is there is a sense in the medieval period itself. I mean, you know, that's the kind of humanist departure, Sort of uh-huh. a slow drift away from the medieval precedent. The Middle Ages is a lot more uh, um, materialist, quite often, in the way that it sees um, both the effects of punishment. I mean, in the article you mentioned, I, I talk about um, Bartholomew of England, for instance, who sort of talks about um, punishment playing a necessary role when the child's body is at its, its kind of softest, apparently. It kind of serves yeah. in some way to toughen them up. Um and that's by no means a kind of isolated example of that line of thinking. But also this um a number of um of texts actually look to the child's body as a kind of index of how much punishment is appropriate. There's a, a series of texts um written in the wake of this this treatise in the well I don't know if you've heard of this thing, it's called uh De Disciplina Scholarium. Um it's one. It's in itself a sort of era-straddling text in that it's written in the 1230s in Paris, um, although it claims to have been written by Boethius, and owing to that claim sort of sticking, um, it, it remains in print sort of well into the middle of the um, 16th century. So it's still being read by early modern pedagog as well as medieval ones. He um, he creates this kind of series of archetypes of of students. Um, for whom kind of different levels and different forms of discipline are most appropriate. And in order to kind of codify that even further, he looks to the four humours. So he creates these kind of, um, four little kind of character sketches of different types of students, like the sanguine, the choleric, the melancholic. Well, on one hand, isolating from the rest of the group in case his sort of, um, the amount of choler within him bursts out in the form of anger. And he needs most and um, close supervision and most kind of um, sustained punishment. The phlegmatic, on the other hand, needs least punishment. Should be ruled with the, um, with uh, a sort of uh, lighter touch, I suppose. Uh, the sanguine is pro because he's, he's filled with blood and is therefore quite erratic um, and has difficulty concentrating. He needs to be kind of moderately supervised, whenever he kind of, apparently his eyes will start twisting towards the walls, so well, that's the point the teacher should step in and, and deliver punishment. So you have a kind of, um, a very kind of materialist view of punishment in what makes it necessary as well as kind of the effects that it carries out. And what it seems to be doing is really providing the master with a series of cues so they can observe their students' behaviour. Um, and even the way they look as well. I mean, obviously, as you're aware, um, your predominant humour, your disposition, your complexion will cause you to look a certain way as well as act a certain way.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, conditions of the body in, in terms of appearance as well as behaviour. So the master has to kind of consult this as a, and uses a series of symptoms to kind of decode what uh-huh. sort of discipline, what sort of punishment is appropriate to the student. So it's more like a kind of taxonomy, a kind of little a- taxonomy
0: like a parallelism or almost like a a, a metaphor, a metaphorical or analogical (laughs) type of reasoning.
2: (laughs) Certainly analogical, yes. Yeah, so that
0: that, that corresponding this connects with this. And Mm. it it, it seems to me that that's a way to connect um, Mm -hmm. learning with the body, uh, with order, but that fits with a, an older definition of of reason mm-hmm. as an order, yeah, a, a, of as an, an order of the universe, rather than be a mechanism internal to a process of thinking yeah. that is yeah. insulated from the world at
2: large. Hmm. Right? That's the kind of harmonics of different elements, I suppose.
0: I yeah, well, if reason if reason is a mechanical operation mm. within the subject. Yeah. and with with subjects who are speaking to each other then mm-hmm. it is not necessarily analogical to the order of the universe at all no it can be disconnected but yeah, and, I yeah. And, and and i guess the reason that i think that's important is because you could have a justification for corporal punishment or pain mm-hmm. that would be connected mm-hmm. to an entirely interior definition of thinking and that'd be a pedagogy yeah. of punishment and you mm. could have another one where mm. there'd be very little space for an independent subject.
2: Mm. And then sense. there'd
0: be no distinction between instruction and power. Yeah. They'd be all the same.
2: So, yeah, it's not at all surprising that, that you do find this kind of form of justification being developed in, in the medieval period. In,
0: in the essay that I I wrote for this episode, and I shared this, this with you in advance, I... I did, yeah. I give attention to this children's petition that comes in the late uh, yes, different yes. version in the late 17th century. And, I, and this is the earliest document I've been able to find where uh, a rather strong argument about curtailing and amending the rights of masters to corporally punished yeah. students. When you read that, what did you see in terms of continuities and changes from the earlier discourse?
2: Well, one thing that did, did sort of um, immediately leap out to me, I'm trying really hard to avoid using the uh, expression struck me I'm um, just becoming <laughs> kind of very self-aware uh, of, the, of the vocabulary use, but um, um, was the sort of early section, well, I mean a, a number of things I found quite interesting in that, but the early section um, referring to there being no sort of external uh, standard for punishment that is kind of uh, it's, it's the, the master is the sole arbiter and it seems the the authors arguing that it's sort of the whole I mean there's all this this reference to kind of self pleasure I think you picked up on in your, your paper as well. Um yeah. the master is pleasing himself and that will obviously make him deliberately seek out um in a very kind of predatory way things to punish because kind of that's enjoyable. So this kind of sense that punishment is born out of no kind of exterior sense of justice or right and wrong. It's just purely almost subjective. Um, you know, those standards only exist within the within the master's mind. But also the fact that part of that is his kind of emotional state as well that is they also refer to um whoever the author is. Um but I don't I me mean. It might be Roger Lestrange himself, I suppose. Um, they refer to sort of the role that anger plays in that as well, referring back to Plutarch's sort of uh, um, comments on beating. And the idea that there is this kind of, you know, when we think about the, the master's mind um, as he's carrying out punishment, on the one hand, it's sort of sealed off from anything external. On the other hand, it's kind of guided by emotion as much as reason. that struck me as being very, there we go, I've fallen into the trap already, Um as being very kind of resonant with a lot of the earlier debates that are happening in the Middle Ages. Uh, well, not necessarily debates, more kind of prescriptions that are drawn up about punishment. Because uh, a lot of those do direct their attention very no Mostly to the um, sort of internal faculties of the master and how the master's mind must be when he's carrying out his beating. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, um, you know, that seems to be the kind of platform, the kind of origin from which correct beating must sort of proceed. Uh, one of the kind of uh, um, strongest examples of this is probably the right. Vincent de Beauvais, who is writing in the middle of the 13th century, and he dedicates quite a lot of space to how beating should be carried out effectively. And he seems to kind of ritualise it um, to sort of quite a great extent. One of the, the main pieces of advice he gives, which seems to kind of act as a trigger that enables everything else to fall into place, is that the master has to wait. He has to observe all the kind of tempo, sort of, kind of time, limit, or sort of delay between the offence and actually carrying out the punishment. Never, he says, never carry out the punishment straight away when you're uh-huh. kind of acting um, purely in the kind of impetuous sort of flush of emotion. You have to set up that kind of uh, deferral, and that will in turn enable the master to be governed more by proportion and reason, and uh, modestia is the term he actually uses. All of those things can kind of be brought into play as kind of mechanisms to inform the, the correct exercise of punishment, rather than kind of immediate, sort of impulsive, sort of lashing out. And you find yeah. kind of variations of this um, all over the place. And um, that
0: would speak to a, a, a stream of, of continuity and <clears> in, <throat> in the importance of subjectivity and to not overdo yeah. the emphasis on the rise of a, a stronger notion of subjectivity in the early modern period, that, yeah, that, there's, yeah, a, yeah. that there's a central concern with with a subject, even if that is a, a changing thing and a historical thing. Yeah. Earlier and perhaps always, it may be a cardinal feature of of humanity, implied in all representation.
2: I mean, certainly the uh, a source like Van um certainly suggests that the the master is a subject position within mm-hmm. the system, no less than um, his pupils. You know, he he has to form his role correctly within these sort of milieu he inhabits rather than um, on a kind of improvisational sort of ad hoc basis. You know, he has to follow a a strict set of rules within the kind of ideology of the classroom. He cannot just respond in that kind of impulsive sort of naked way. He has to kind of, I mean, he says, for instance, that um, punishment always has to happen before an audience. So... Mm. I mean, this is very, very Foucauldian, really. He's talking about the kind mm-hmm. of maximizing the kind of effectiveness and the efficiency of punishment, really. You know, this is a, so each single blow on a pupil will be witnessed by the whole class. So effectively, you're punishing everyone collectively with the least sort of expenditure of energy, I suppose. Um, and again, that is something that he deliberately says, make um, this kind of pause, makes possible. You know, once you've the master has kept back his arm in order not to kind of laugh. Out immediately. Then um, it allows him to kind of orchestrate a sort of punishment as a spectacle, rather than kind of something that may only take place between him and the single pupil. So I think that that perhaps is quite appropriate. That kind of um, looking at that 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 pause that he um, he advocates as being a sort of space in which you know the master can reconnect with that subject position.
0: Sort of just a, a thought that just occurred to me is who wrote this anonymous document and and we don 't know uh, uh, at least i don 't know and and uh, there 's only a, a few secondary sources that refer to in, in one article really on this, but the fact that that the anonymous author chose to call it a children 's petition yeah, and now, how do we read that
2: well i I did find that quite peculiar i mean the um, I mean, this this is looking backward a bit further, but what it sort of reminded me of most um, forcibly was, um, I don't know if you've, you've come across Simon Fisher's supplication for the beggars. It was written in the early part of the 16th century. And, I mean, you know, Simon Fisher was, I think, a Cambridge or Oxford graduate He was certainly not a beggar in his own right at all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's I'm talking about disenfranchising of um, large numbers of the clergy. I mean, in some respects, we argue that it had quite a degree of influence on Henry VIII's sort of later policies. But that, that kind of idea, um, that sort of appeal in the name of a mass of people, actually, you can't think of it, it goes back further to the Middle Ages. The 14th century text called The Song of the Husbandman, which, although it's a, that's a modern um, title, supply supply it's actually quite descriptive of its contents. Again, it claims to be we poor men. I don't know, that, that seems to be quite a kind of again, if we're talking about continuity that seems a different sort of, I mean it's, it's a continuity that's been taken up and, and reconfigured in this particular document but that, that idea of representing a kind of larger mass and as you say, despite the fact that actually what is being vocalised is at best the opinion of a privileged few That seems to be a kind of literary resource that's sort of already at hand. That's a
0: fascinating set of connections. I'm interested, what do you make of this passage from the children's petition that struck me as a point of contrast with some of the materials you've examined? The The understanding will never be enlightened, the memory healed or the invention quickened by stripes upon the flesh. So this attempt yes. to separate it, which is sort of it. It, it, it seems to me to draw on a, a sort of Renaissance humanism.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's probably appropriate. Yeah, as you said, I mean, there's clearly a line's being drawn here between flesh. And it's not body here, of course. It's flesh as something inert, something that it, that is just purely reduced to a kind of homogenous substance. Versus the kind of those aspects, those faculties of the self, yeah.
0: That the intellect so, is disembodied. Mm, the two things are not. Yeah,
2: I mean, sort yeah. of squared, but don't, don't
0: Yeah, and 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 uh, they they precede this. The authors or the author precedes this by, you know, there's certainly a place for chastisement and for mm. corporal punishment in from the point of view of the author. They're not saying that children and others shouldn't be struck but th- th- their argument is is again compartmentalizing it in a way that seems to follow upon renaissance humanism and and yeah. build upon it and and the argument is that chastisement is meat or is appropriate for sin
2: yeah or some I mean, moral
0: they- some moral fault but not for learning again placing the intellect in a place outside of the moral, mm. political realm.
2: I mean, yeah, it does. It, it does seem to be sort of compartmentalizing the self as much as anything. That you know, the flesh and the minds. I mean, the, the, there's a very kind of uh, impermeable barrier sort of between them here, which is which is not not something you do tend to find in the medieval discussions where there is a, a sort of an ease with which traffic can pass from one to the other. I mean, one of the passages I mentioned in, in the article I sent to you, I don't know if you recall this, it's, uh, it's my favourite uh, medieval statement, so I, I will do my best to crowbar it into every discussion, <laughs> is the the commentary on juvenile, which is attributed to um, William of Conch. Yes. Um, is commenting on juvenile, and uh, picks up a kind of rogue... Um, Reference in the original text to uh, we've all I think it's the passage that we've all uh, flinched a hand beneath the rod, mm-hmm. um, and then goes to this little um, disposition of how exactly the rod should be used properly and why it should be used. So, so the author talks about whoever he happens to be uh, to, says that um, I'm trying quite from memory. Um, you can render it in English as. Um, the master strikes the pupil um, on the left hand because as the hands closer to the heart, which mm-hmm. will stir the, the blood and prevent the ingenium, the kind of mental faculty of invention, as we talked about, um, from becoming too sluggish. It, it quickens the pulse. It sort of pushes the blood into the heart quickens the the sort of circulation of blood throughout the body, and this in some way kind of restarts the kind of uh, ingenium, the mental faculty of invention or imagination when it's sort of threatening to stall as the uh, as the sort of uh, teacher's droning on and the, the the pupil's getting bored, I suppose. So it's a kind of way of kind of jump-starting the, the pupil's mind by affecting their, by, you know, by, by striking them on the hand and affecting their blood. So there, there is kind of, you know, it's a series of biological interventions that actually leads to a kind of mental intervention. Intervention, you know, the tutor is actually able to, to use the blood because it travels presumably all over the body as a way of getting at the the sort of mind within the student. You know, it's not really seen as being much difference between the two. The two are sort of equally part of the same of the same series of processes. Whereas I think um, the child, the children's position is as you say coming at it from quite a different quite a different standpoint um, yeah. the, there is this division between flesh and mind. There's That's not there at all in the, the William the Conch text.
0: You know. Let me shift gears a bit. Maybe in my own article, in in pointing to the majority position of corporal punishment, I undersell the fact that there's a lot more um, authority and kind and anti-corporal punishment position mm. in the world today. And in the... And, and, and throughout the late 20th century, really than any other time. Yeah. That it's not just Sweden, that it's significant powerful forces in Canada, in the United States, in the UK, particularly the European yeah. Union. The European Union as a political organization is, is strongly, strongly opposed to the rights of parents and teachers to please yes. children. And that, and, and that I may be underselling that a bit, and that it is, that is that is significantly different than anything that I found in the medieval or early modern period. What are What's your response to that sense of change, or how do you read that
2: modern change? I think it's more of a mutation than a change. And I think um, the, the, well, on the one hand, the sort of, the fact there is a a political um, institution which is opposed to um i mean I see, i'm see, perhaps more interested in the kind of resistance to those those calls by bodies such as the european union um i mean living in the uk uh, unfortunately uh, i think i can i can see from kind of the, the way public discourse tends to, to flow Here, why there is resistance to um, the European Union's sort of calls to outlaw smacking. I remember there was quite a lot of um, discussion of it um, over the past sort of. whenever it gets raised, it proves enormously controversial. And the reason it's controversial is because it's seen as being a sort of state or even sort of meta state intervention into what should be private life. So it's sort of the, the state kind of stepping into the home, the kind of domestic space. Mm-hmm. Of course, we know that the family is an institution and a social institution at that, an ideological institution, if I can go any further, um, no less than anything else. But there is the kind of an idea that it should be self-regulating, that any, uh, that it should have its own kind of internal authority to subscribe to, and that should be sacrosanct and not interfered with it from kind of figures from outside um, that do inhabit this kind of political sphere. So there's a clear set. I think what motivates it is the sense that the division between public and private should be honoured and respected and, you know, parents should have more authority over their parents, over their children rather, than uh, any body or any institution outside the immediate precincts of the family. Mm-hmm. And this, it's itself is something I think that you do find in um, earlier periods. There's a, a sort of an odd tendency that starts to emerge in the 15th century amongst, in, in pedagogic discourse in particular in England, um, which defines um, pedagogic uh, punishment uh, as being more effective than punishment within the household. Uh, um, I don't, I don't know if you've come across, I'm um, to remember the name of the, the writer. Um, he's one of Richard Mulcaster's pupils at the Merchant Sailor okay. School in the 16th century. Thomas, is it Thomas Fuller? Thomas Fuller, perhaps? Okay. Well, I'll have to. Uh, that's something to, to fact check, I think. Yeah. Um, but he has a kind of series of reminiscences about um, Mulcaster and the way that he used to run his classroom. And what. One of the things that he uh, mentions is that um, Mulcastle was quite happy to beat his students at the smallest pretext, and he beat them all the harder if he received a note from the mother saying, can you please lay off my son for a few days? That would have the exactly opposite effect. You know, how dare she, how very dare she Uh, try to dictate to me how I ought to behave in my classroom. And um, there's other instances of this as well. There's um, the... Uh, there's a series of French to English dialogues drawn up by Claudius Hollyband in the mid 16th century as well. Where um, I mean, this is a series of translation exercises. So you know, this is this is the teacher talking talking immediately to the students. And one of the dialogues is a pupil coming to school carrying a ring from his father, um, and the ring is supposed to prove that the pupil is late because uh, it was uh, his, fa- his father's fault rather than the boy's fault himself. So he produces this ring as kind of a show of that to the tutor in this dialogue, and the, and the tutor sort of says, I'm going to hit you all the harder. <laughs> so mm-hmm. this idea that once that there is a kind of contest between parental authority and the master's authority in the schoolroom, that, um, that once the child is within that space, they have to have kind of parental influence, which is, of course, irrational and guided by love and affection and all these things that need to be, because they are irrational and emotional, kind of stripped away from the proper masculine subject. That There has to be that kind of separation observed and observed through sort of beating, through kind of corporal punishment as well. So I think that that kind of, friction, that sort of fault line, actually, again, it has, it's, it's different and it's sort of taken on a new form. But again, it is, it is kind of born out of that sense of rivalry that the, the school and the family are not raising the child in the same way, but they represent kind of different models and different hierarchies and different um, sort of schemata into which the child is accommodated. And the two are kind of almost competing over the child, the school being the kind of rational, unaffectionate sort of space where emotion doesn't intrude, the house, the home, the household being the space in which children are raised with this kind of contaminating effects of fatherly and particularly motherly affection, sort of softening them up. So it's going the other way, I think. I think now the sort of... um, liberal democracy is the soft touch and really what's, you know, the defense of uh, corporal punishment in the home is born out of the sense that children still need it. But again, it's that kind of rivalry merely inverted rather than actually, I'd say, a completely new form of being an entirely new thing. If that makes any sort of sense.
0: Uh, It it, it very much makes sense. One of the most stunning things that a a Agamben... Points out in his Homo Sacer series of books that what you're talking about is that there's a, a very, very old idea, and it's not mm. only in Greek, but the Gr- Greek is an example that there's a Greek word for life that's Zoe, and that's bear no. life. And mm. that's where the child has been located, and is still located in some sense. That bear yeah. life is a, a pre political or non political sphere as opposed to bias. Mm bios is life also bios is in the the political and the social part of what's happening in the conflict or one way to read that conflict between the master and the parent is that they're both positioning the child as if they have sort of an originary sovereign bond
2: to them indeed yeah which yeah. is
0: outside of, of bios which is prior yeah. to the greek concept of bios or the greek concept of polis or politics the inversion that you're speaking about happens because in the early modern period there is a politicization of bare life i think so this has been great ben thank you yes, thank you, thank you.